Our gracious Father, we are here to learn and to grow in our understanding of this world that you have put us in. Lord, it is according to your sovereign providence that we live in the day we live and that we are faced with the challenges that we are faced. And Lord, all of the swirling questions, all of the various voices that are clamoring to be heard Lord, give us a sound mind, a sound heart. Give us a sound understanding of what your Bible teaches concerning uh, the civil magistrate and its relationship to and with the church in this world. And so we, uh, again, ask for your blessing. We ask for you to guide us, uh, uh, train our, uh, not only fill our minds with truth, but train our affections accordingly. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. I want to begin reading the psalm and then explaining various principles. Beginning at verse one, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, beloved, as we keep reading the psalm over and over, I hope that you're hearing it um, more clear or hearing it clearly every time or at least things are becoming clearer as we talk through some of these principles as I may have brought things to your attention that maybe you haven't thought about before you know the psalms aren't just to be sung they're not just to uh, give us things to always take the application and make it to the church and to individuals. Here we have a psalm that clearly addresses the nations. And we have a psalm that clearly addresses the kings of those nations. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we deal honestly with scripture is what are the implications of this? I mean, is this an Old Testament text of scripture that has no current application, has no current authority at all in our day and time, what we call the modern age. I'm sure there are some that take that position. There are Christians that take the position that 
This world is very dirty and ugly, and we should have very limited access, use of it, and we just abide our time until we get to heaven. Now, that philosophy um, that addresses that thought is called Platonism. And it's the idea that the flesh is evil, the spirit is good. Everything physical is bad, everything spiritual is good. Now, Christians have taken that and, and wrongly used it in, well, to try to make sense of the Christian life. And through the various struggles, the challenges, the difficulties, all of these things, the temptation of sin, all of these things that we live in, uh, all these things that we experience in a fallen world are, are just blanketed with bad, evil, no good. We're just waiting to go to heaven. And that's just the wrong way to handle those things. Now, God is sovereign. His providence is, is sovereign, Right? And we have to contend with those things. If we believe God is sovereign, if we believe his providence, he doesn't make mistakes. I mean, look at, look at so much clamor over the idea that God makes mistakes. I mean, that's what we're talking about when we talk about gender confusion, when we talk about uh, uh, sexual confusion, all of these various things which really are the ultimate, the, the underlying doctrine there is God makes mistakes. If there is a God, he makes mistakes. And others would say there is no God. It's just a cosmic chaos. And so anything can be anything. And there's no sense in preaching that sermon. I think you get it, but I continually want to tie those together a lot of the uh, the chaos that we live in it it flows from a wrong understanding of the christian faith and it comes from a wrong understanding of this world and certainly uh, a, a, a a an attempt to make science or pseudoscience god evolution evolution is not a science it's a philosophy of life it's a philosophical attempt to answer where the, where the origin of things. Science can't answer that question. We weren't there to observe it. It's a philosophy. The Bible tells us what happened in the beginning and we accept it by faith. We weren't there. So we read Moses' account and we accept it. Because not only did Moses tell us about the origin of the world, but Moses himself had to deal with the various philosophies of the origin of the world in Egypt. It's not new. Evolution isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just typically wrapped up in a different package. So as we talk about government one of the things I did, I went back and I started kind of rehearsing in my mind all the various books that have been written, um, kind of laying out a political philosophy. And, and there are probably a dozen books um, that do, along with Christians, um, 
books. I mean, you think about um, a very influential book uh, setting forth sort of a, a Christian philosophy uh, politically is um, The Kingdom of God by uh, Augustine. Um, the city of God on earth, if you will. Not the kingdom of God, but the city of God. Uh, Calvin, when he wrote his institutes, are you aware of who he wrote those institutes to? Well, to a prince. What was Calvin's purpose of writing the institutes to a prince? Well, what was going on in Calvin's day was the lie that Christians are rebels and Christians are anti-state. And therefore, they must be put down. They must be handled roughly, accordingly. So Calvin is writing these institutes by, by addressing these issues, current issues of his day, and saying, not at all. None of this is true. And he begins by laying out the authority of God. Uh, the authority of God in his son, Jesus, what it, the, the role faith plays, the role the family plays, the role that the state plays, all laying out the biblical uh, understanding of, of what, how a Christian views the world that they live in. Many of his commentaries are dedicated to princes, noblemen. Now, you have to understand the relationship there. He wrote it and he dedicates that work to these officials. Well, he's not the only one. I, a, a recent set of books that I purchased, um, written, I think, by three men, uh, Polyander being one of them, I can't think of the other two, um, but it's called A Synopsis of a Pure Theology. I've mentioned them before, but they do very similar things. They go through and they take arguments of the day and they begin to put Christian thought to them and it's broken up into paragraph form and so as I broke it out and read their section on the civil magistrate they're saying the same things that I'm teaching you here nothing new there they talk about the origin of government they talk about the authority over that government and they talk about the responsibility of that of civil magistrate for the good of the people now, somewhere along the way, brothers and sisters, we've lost our way. We've lost our way. And we've allowed people to drive large wedges between religion and politics. Large enough to bring great damage. Okay? And again, going to this idea of Platonism, the physical is bad, the spiritual is good, which means the state is bad, the church is good, don't worry about any of those things. I mean, the confession addresses those things and we will look at those. But there are, there are a number of ways that throughout the decades and centuries that Christians have tried to answer common problems of their day. Now, let me say this before we really get into the meat and substance of our afternoon, because this is going to come up when you begin, when you begin this discussion with someone, this, these things are going to come up and they're going to talk about the abuses and they're going to talk about religious wars and they're going to talk about religious tyranny. And, and there's a place for that discussion. We would be blind and foolish to ignore it. 
But the question is simplified in my mind, and maybe in yours too, when we look at a family, we can look at families with all kinds of problems. Does it still, does it not, do they become less of a family? No. Do they become less useful? Not really. Do they become less necessary in the world? No. You take the same philosophy governing that and you just transfer it to a larger family called the state. And it's very similar. Just because something has been abused doesn't mean you throw it away. It doesn't mean you throw it out. Number one, we don't have the authority to do that. But number two, you should not do that. And in this idea that's been promoted now for uh, at least a century that, well, all that was bad was the, was the intermingling of religion with the state. So therefore, we need to completely separate the two. And that was a huge mistake. Even though I don't think our founding fathers, and I think Benjamin Franklin clarified this in one of his letters. I don't think our founding father, fathers believed that the First Amendment was the, the separation of church and state as if to have no, no uh, uh, relationship with one another. That's the way it's been interpreted. There's no relationship between church and state. And therefore, what has come of that? Plurality. Diversity. Now, brothers and sisters, the scriptures teach us unless two are agreed, they can't walk together. Diversity, diversity at that level never works. It's not going to work. One will always rise to the top. One will always prove to be dominant. And usually that dominance comes through some type of force at that point. Because that's, well, that's the nature of the battle royal, isn't it? Who's first? Who's going to be first? It seems reasonable, coupled with the state constitutions, that what the founding fathers meant was that the federal government would not respect any denomination of Christians, but that Christianity would be the ruling law in this nation. And there's hundreds of quotes we could quote. There's plenty that we could quote of men of our history stating such. But why has the church failed? That's what we're talking about. We are talking about gaining a clearer understanding um, of what it is to live as a citizen in this world and what God thinks about that. And so we've been looking at these principles in scriptures. And of course, the first one that we looked at was the origin of civil government and that it was a, well, given by God. It is something that God established. It flows out of his will. It, it pleased God for men to give men a government. Not to have one would be opposing his will. Now, you could say, well, the, it's got to be a republic. Well, listen. How do I put this? Christianity can can thrive in a number of governments, in kinds of governments. Christianity can thrive in a monarchy. 
Christianity can, can, can thrive in aristocracy. Okay? It can thrive in a democracy, a republic. When we look, and in fact, Polyander makes the comment in his disputation, he says, listen, the wisdom is that the government fits the day. And whatever government is needed for the good of the people, whatever, whatever it takes to promote these divine graces, these goodness in the people, then let it be. So be it. That is the argument for us shouldn't be when we stand up on the perch, so to speak, is to argue for this, you know, certain republic. That's not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing that there is a coexistence and a relationship between church and state. And that is vital to the health and well-being of any people, especially as it's Christian. Okay? That's my argument. I'm not necessarily advocating for one government over another. If you had the right king, you'd be in love with him. If we had the right ruler, everybody'd be in love with him. If he was a wise person, if he was benevolent, if he was, if he was just, if he was righteous, if he was considerate, if he was, if he was mindful, who would be opposed to that? I don't think any of us would. That is, we couldn't go to the Bible and say, that's a violation of Scripture. It is not. Having a king is not a violation of Scripture. In order to also show you the importance of government, take your Bibles and turn them open to uh, 1 Peter. First Peter chapter two, verse 13 through 17 it says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now, what's important about this text of scripture in light of what I said? Well, who is Peter writing to? He's writing to those Hebrews that have been dispersed. They're not in Israel. Where have they been dispersed? All over Asia, all over Europe. What's Peter telling these Hebrews that have been dispersed all over Asia Minor and Europe? Wherever they go, what is he telling them? Submit to the government. He's telling them, look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Why? Because who ordained the institution? God did. 
And he says, whether to a king as to one in authority or governors, you seem to have the intimation there, well, is it a monarchy or is it a republic? As sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. Now, that's, that, it, it, this perfectly fits with Paul's exposition of Romans 13, where Paul is saying, listen, here's the role of civil magistrate. This is the ideal of civil magistrate. The ideal of civil magistrate is, let me just sum it up, is to what? Well, put fear in the heart of the evildoer and put great encouragement into the one who obeys. Bless those who are obedient and certainly punish those who do not um, obey. Now, again, so many of us are taught and trained to go, wait a minute, what are you saying? Well, here's the thing about America, because I get this question a lot whether it's talking about the Second Amendment, whether it's talking about gun control, a number of things. Our Constitution says you cannot establish any law that violates the Constitution. Any law created by Congress that violates the Constitution is no law at all. And that is true. We have a very unique situation in our country not to mention, given the temperature of the climate, it is always wise for us to consider why we are being told to do certain things. And not to check our minds at, you know, not to check our minds out and to follow blindly anything. Now, that's, uh, we can follow up on that in a little bit. The point is that as these Hebrews are being scattered about, what is Peter telling them God's will is? Go out there and live at peace in this land, in these lands that you're going to. How are you going to live at peace in the land? Well, submit yourselves to the authorities there. You're not going there to start a revolution. You're going there to assume, your, to assume yourselves and your family into those lands and to obey those things that you can in good conscience obey. But you're never to obey any human law that requires you to disobey God's law. We see that in the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. I believe it's Acts 4, Acts 5. What did the Sanhedrin, a governing body, Pull Peter and John in and tell them, you can't preach this stuff. You can't preach the gospel here. We forbid you to preach the gospel. And what did Peter tell them? We must obey God rather than men. You don't have the right to tell me I can't preach the gospel. I've been called of God. I've been called of Christ. By Christ to what? I've been ordained. I'm a minister of the gospel to preach the gospel. And we see from that text of scripture that the state has no authority to tell the minister he can't preach the gospel. And that's why Peter was legitimately in God's will by saying, I'm sorry. No, can't do that. You don't have the authority. To, you don't have the authority to come in here and tell a minister what to preach and what not to preach. We find Daniel 
Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, what do we find them doing in um, Babylon? They did assimilate. Did they obey all of the laws? No, they did not. Can you think of a few they didn't obey? I know you can. One of them was to bow down to the idol. Basically, worship the state. Worship the state. And they refused to do so, and they were what? Well, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were thrown into the, what? The fiery furnace. And we have an extraordinary event where Christ comes and saves them. Can you think of another person who disobeyed the laws of Babylon? Daniel. Remember the edict that went out that you should what? Only pray to the sovereign of the state. And Daniel lifted up his curtains and he prayed to God like he always does. Or like he always, excuse me, like he always did. And he was punished for it. And God spared him and delivered him. So we have instances where the state has demanded sinful actions upon its citizens and upon these Hebrews, and they refused to do so, and they were correct in, um, in rebelling against those laws. Um, let me see. I think it's 1 Samuel 13. Is that the text I'm thinking about? Okay, 1 Samuel 13. Now, this is just another kind of way that there's a sinful intermingling of the church and state that we are not for. In 1 Samuel 13, this is King Saul. Um, There had been victory. He wanted to offer these sacrifices, and Samuel was the only one authorized to offer these sacrifices before God. Samuel was the prophet. Saul was the king. Saul did not, he became impatient, and he decided that he was going to offer these sacrifices to God. And look at verse 9, or look at verse 8 9. He says, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him and greet, to greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling in, in Michmash. Therefore, I said, now these Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked for the favor of the Lord. So I forced, my, uh, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Saul said, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For know that the Lord uh, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom is 
shall not endure. And the Lord sought out for himself a man after his own heart. I mean, here's the thing. So what did Saul do? Saul usurped the boundary of the civil magistrate and involved himself in the official worship of the church. And he was rebuked and punished for it. Now, he was rebuked by Samuel. God punished him. God punished him by removing him as king. And so that's what we have, brothers and sisters. We have, and it's a perfect picture, is it not, of two spheres of this life, physical and spiritual. You, most people say, well, we have the, sac- the, the sacred and secular I understand the concepts, and I think there's some use to the two concepts. But here's the thing. All life is sacred. I mean, isn't the way you do your job important? What does Paul say in Ephesians? How should you work before your employer as unto the Lord? How should you act in your family as unto the Lord? There's no dichotomy in that. That is, there's no area, there's no neutral ground, so to speak, where we can come into this life and say, ah, you know what, that's not spiritual. This is sort of the secular and be done with it. I mean, I I, I understand the concept and ideas, but we've allowed these terms to pervert our Christian understanding of this world and to shape our interpretation of Scripture. In a, in a wrong way, the church has the sphere of sovereignty over the spiritual realm, which we're spiritual people, but we're also physical people. And we have the civil magistrate governing over the physical aspects of life. Look at the wisdom of God giving us these two institutions for the good of the people. And you say, well, pastor, there's been a lot of abuse. I know it. I know Does the abuse mean we stop obeying God? Does the abuse mean we reinterpret Scripture to say something it doesn't say, to justify not doing the things we ought to do? This is why the confession talked about the responsibility of Christians in politics. They answered this question. They, deal, they were dealing with Platonism in their own day, and they said it is very lawful for Christians to be involved in politics. It does not affect his Christianity one bit if he chooses to do that. I'm going to save the confession of faith for its own, um, and you'll see how I believe these principles line perfectly up with it. So we see that there is a, a, a realm of spiritual sovereignty and that throughout history, there's been this pendulum swing of back and forth and back and forth of, of tyranny, abuse in church and state, not just the state, church too. You had some that believed that the church should be over the state. 
Well, that didn't work. That, that proved to be abusive. Then it's like, oh no, the church needs to be, uh, the state needs to be over the church and involved in the church and micromanaging the church. Well, that turned into abuse. Now we've got the separation of powers, but now we've separated them so far, they're, no, they're not even relevant and connected to each other. When it shouldn't be separation of church and state, it should be distinction of, sep- of church and state. The distinction of church and state is the more biblical concept. The two are legitimate powers and they are distinct and useful to this land and ought to be used that way. You know, it's interesting, you know, as, as we watch Europe, what are we watching in Europe? What are we seeing in Europe? Where we're watching Christian, quote, post-Christian nations that, that has a long, rich history stumble and stumble until now, they've, now they have elected Indian presidents, Hindus, polytheists. Now, if you think the Christian version of law and Hindu's version of law are the same, they're not. And, and what is going on here? What did you see on the GOP platform? What's, what's the one person everybody's talking about? A Hindu. Brothers and sisters, this is not accidental. And it's been, it's a, it has happened because Christians have forgotten their way. And Christians have forgotten their way because they don't know the Bible. It's interesting that... Um, in the Georgia Constitution, well, let me find this statement. It talks about religion. Let's see. Let me find the statement. Oh, right here. Um, when it, as it addressed uh, religious freedom that the... Um, all that there'd be the free exercise of religion, provided it not be repugnant to the peace and the safety of the state. Why did Calvin write the Institutes? What was Calvin demonstrating in the Institutes? That Christianity is not repugnant to the state. That it, it's, in fact, Christians understand the divine origin of civil government. And so when you talk about peace, does that mean there never can be an uprising? Of course not. We are, we have a moral right to protect our persons. We have a moral right to protect our families. We have a moral right to protect our neighbors. That's God's law. That's God's natural law. That's his moral law. So we see in the third principle, I think we've covered those first two, but the third principle is that 
Burks lays out, he says, there is a legitimate civil authority that has been instituted and ordained of God to maintain law and order, to protect the rights of citizens. What rights do you think they're talking about? Those that are inalienable, those that are given and granted by God, that they have a duty to protect those rights and to provide for the general welfare of its citizens. He also says that the church or that the state should not oppose, but support the moral teachings of the church to collaborate with the church in order to promote a just and righteous society. You might see the, again, look at the the body. The body's made up of the spiritual and physical, isn't it? What about these institutions? We have a physical, we have one that focuses on the physical, and we have one that focuses on the spiritual. But they work in tandem together for the good of the people and to the glory of God. That it should, it's incumbent, it's, it's in order, I mean, you know the verse. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin brings it low. Now, with that principle being true, that moral maxim, how do we do that? How do we do that? If you're a civil magistrate and you read that verse, what should it spur you to do? It should spur you to to cultivate, enhance, and to teach what? A moral foundation. And not the opposite. And that's why Marxism and communism is a political philosophy that is anti-Christian. I guess I'll end with this. Communism first and foremost is anti-Christian. It despises everything religious. And Christianity and communism will never coexist together. Not, not, now, maybe Joel Osteen will. I'm not talking about individual pastors. But I'm talking about biblical, viable Christianity cannot coexist with communism. And that's why you had an underground church in Russia. That's why you still have, for the most part, even an underground church in China. What's one thing the, China, the Chinese government will not tolerate? Viable Christianity. We find those principles being violated there. They, the state is the sovereign over the conscience. The state tells the church what it can and can't preach unless they're underground. And what we did realize that after the Iron Curtain fell in Russia, that the church in Russia was vitally stronger than any church, than, than the church in the United States. Because it had learned how to survive trusting and believing the scriptures. And they didn't have, you know, it was against the law to have a Bible. So they had to memorize books of the Bible. They had to tear out books of the Bible. They had to pass around the Bible, parts of it, so they could have the Bible to read. And what did that, what in God's sovereignty in his providence, what did that cause in the people? A thirst for it. See, we have 
You know, I've got 20 Bibles in my house. How many do you have? How many Bibles do we have represented in this room? A hundred? Well, you take that away because it becomes a hate crime. And you'll start hungering for it, thirsting for it. And you'll start seeking it out. And, and you know, I, I think in one sense, it could definitely be what God's doing is stirring us up to ask some of these basic questions. Who's in charge? Well, I mean, God's in charge. And men are foolish to think that they are ultimately in charge, right? What should we demand from our civil government? Law and order. Protection. General welfare. And when you say general welfare, we're talking about sanitation. I mean, we're talking about things that are general, things that touch all of us. I mean, there's a reason why we don't have, you know, it's not lawful to have a chemical dump site by the church here. That's why it's unlawful for us to go dump our chemicals in the river. That's general welfare. Everything, why? Because it, whatever you dump up here affects everybody down here. I mean, we could talk about sanitation. We could talk about uh, traffic law. I mean, we can talk about the general welfare, the things that make us live at peace with one another, that aid that, that support that. But when you start championing all of this communism, look, the heart of communism is segregation. You turn the the man against the woman. You turn the adult against the child. You turn the child against the parents. You you, you, You turn the whites against the blacks, the blacks against the white, the Mexicans against the Asians, the Asians against the Mexicans. I mean, it thrives on dissecting and segregating. And it teaches that every group needs to stand up and go, what about my rights, my rights, my rights? And they, they, Christianity doesn't do that. We recognize the general benevolence. We recognize the general welfare. And we, we ought to have an understanding that none of it's going to be perfect, but that these are the steps we take in order to achieve a moral and righteous and just society and community for not only us, but for our children. And that's one reason I'm, I, I'm campaigning so hard in one sense, and it's one reason I've started taking stands that I've really not taken as strongly because I look at my children and I look at my children's children and I'm going, if I don't, who will? Right? If you don't do it for your children and your children's children, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Who's going to fight this fight? So we have to recognize the role of authority and we have to start pushing our, 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 our civil authorities to perform these roles. And it's so hard. I, I, don't, I mean, obviously this battle ain't gonna be one in five, 10, 20, it's, it's probably a lifetime. Because the church has to start preaching and teaching this stuff. We've gotta change the mind of church people. We've got to change the mind of the every ordinary, the everyday people. And, and listen, one, look, you know, you know who built them. You know where the, you know who invented the middle class, the Reformation. There was no middle class before the Reformation. 
There was the haves and the have-nots. There were the elites and there were the peasants. The Reformation came in and taught dignity because even at that time, the Catholic Church was dominating and said, oh, the, really the best profession to go into is the priesthood. That's where you make your money. And you could buy these places. You could buy these slots. You could buy the priesthood. You could buy these positions. Well, the Reformation came in and it's taught the dignity of the, uh, of the shoemaker. It taught the dignity of the housewife. It taught the dignity of the family. It taught the dignity of all of these other professions under the dominion of God. It taught the, that, that moral law is to be extended and, and, and there are rights and there are, there are responsibilities and there are duties. And guess what came out of that? Well, a people being paid a fair wage. A people being able to buy food. A people being able to, to secure for themselves a home. And it created the middle class. Christianity did that. When I say the Reformation, I mean biblical revival of the scriptures created it. And what's at stake now? What's going away? What's going away? The middle class. As we, as we drink more from this fountain of communism and socialism, what's going to begin to disappear? The middle class. And you're going to get back to what? The haves and the have-nots. That's where you're going. First and foremost, because Christians have given up on the Bible. And a vibrant, robust Christianity that believes in going out and, and, and harnessing this world for the dominion of God's glory. We've given it up. And we've, we, we've sat back and we've popped our popcorn and we're just waiting on heaven. And while the world has not stopped, Satan has taken advantage of it and he has continued to advance his own rules, his own principles, and his own tyranny while Christians sit back waiting on Jesus to come. And now we find ourselves in a very uncomfortable situation. What's the answer? Revival. But revival beginning with us. Revival beginning in our homes. We talk about these things. Don't think I don't talk about this. Don't think, I mean, my, you know, um, I, this is a little funny side note. We'll, we'll end here. I'll take some questions. Um, <laughs> My youngest daughter's in a media class, and so she was had to create these uh, these uh, short movies. Well, she created one of the family, and of course, when it came to me, it was like a picture, and then it was uh, gets political real fast. <laughs> that was the and I I gave her the thumbs up. He goes, yeah, you know, gets political fast, you know, <laughs> and I thought, oh, true, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed and I'm not apologizing. So, brothers and sisters, maybe it's time we get political real fast. 
Maybe it's time for these discussions, but we got to know something. We, got, we, ha- we have to know our Bibles, right? All right, any questions?